Welcome to another episode of How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, and today I have the privilege and the pleasure of talking with Dr. Mike Allen. How are we doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Nate. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to catch up again. Last time we were last time we were talking, it was NBA playoffs and the bubble, and somehow it's already another NBA season. I, you know, I, I won't jump to saying it's a good year, but that's a good thing. Yeah. I'll say that. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but we are not here today to talk about uh, the early parts of the NBA season. We're here to talk about reading Song of Songs. Uh, we've already done a couple episodes. There, uh, Josh Kessler and I did a introduction to the book, uh, and then Ben Kant and I did a, a little bit on reading it devotionally. And in both of those episodes, we've talked about how uh, how we can read Song of Songs as Christian scripture, so that it's not just erotic Hebrew love poetry that doesn't seem to fit in the Bible. Uh, and so. Mike, can you give us a little bit more on that? Uh, maybe a history of how Christians have read the Song of Songs? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating book. You can talk about uh, the sort of the life different parts of the Bible have had. If we're honest, you know, even those of us who confess that the 66 books of the Bible are all the Word of God— We'd have to be honest and say over time, some of them get more or less attention. And so it's always interesting to ask which books for different people or eras or churches and church traditions tend to gravitate to some and not to others. And sometimes it's interesting to see that that whatever may be the case for me or for us as a congregation or a wider denomination or tradition that may not have always been the case across time. And, and this is one of those examples. Uh, if you were to ask what is the most preached text of the Bible for the first 1500 years of the Christian church, most people in the year 2021 probably wouldn't jump to assuming it would be the Song of Songs. But in fact, it is Yeah. Uh, the, the single most preached book of the Bible. And, and not just amongst Christians. If you were to look at Jews before them asking which parts of their Hebrew scripture are viewed as being weightiest or highest. Uh, you can hear, you know, from rabbis like Rabbi Akiva commenting on how it is the holy of holies of Hebrew scripture. And so whether it's just frequency of preaching it or it's the kind of description it gets from rabbis and other teachers, this book has held a much more central, a much loftier place in Jewish and then Christian reading in what we might call the pre-modern era compared to what I imagine we experience it today, where most churches, at least most evangelical and, and Protestant churches, tend to pull it out maybe for marriage seminars or the very occasional once-a-generation kind of teaching series. Um, and, you know, it's worth saying for good or ill, that's weird. Uh, that's not the way Christians have done it throughout most of the church's history. And that ought to just raise the question, are, are we missing out? Uh, is it good that we pay less attention to it? Or uh, is there something that our sisters and brothers uh, from centuries past and around the globe that their attention, their prioritization might really clue us into something we're actually missing? Um, and it just seems to me this is a great example of of being challenged by that kind of wider, universal, 
uh, sort of influence of the communion of the saints. Yeah, it, it, I feel like it does raise the question, if this was the most preached upon book for the first 1500 years of the church, and it's not, it's very obviously not so much like that now, is it us missing something or was it them missing something? And it's, it, it seems a bit presumptuous to say that they're the ones that had it wrong for 1500 years. Although maybe there's something to our gut instinct as Protestants to want to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater and anything, anything before Martin Luther's kind of suspect, we might say. Yeah. Now what's interesting is uh, this isn't a shift that happens with the Reformation. It's a shift that happens later. So you'd really have to track closer to the 18th to 19th centuries to see where Christians stop paying so much attention to it. Um, but actually through the reformers and then uh, folks in the 17th century, like the Puritans, mm. uh, this would continue to be really central to what they talk about. And then you look around and in the last 200 years, uh, there are fewer commentaries written on it. Uh, there are fewer sermon series, as far as we can tell, preached on it. Uh, it doesn't play as big a role in devotional literature as it used to. It really well gets sorted into sort of Christian teaching on sex and marriage. And, and I think that tips us off to the bigger shift. And uh, I think you're right to say, you know, not just are we missing something, but also have we learned something? And uh, I, I think there's an element of both. Uh, in one sense, the, the most profound thing is I, I, I do think we've lost something first. Um, most moderns think of it as, you know, a marriage and a sexual relationship being described. And we have to acknowledge that's a really strange thing to be titled the Song of Songs. Yeah. Like, there's some great songs in Scripture, aren't there? I mean, Hannah's, Hannah's song, Mary's Magnificat, the whole Psalter. Songs about redemption and the old and the new. Um, so many songs we continue to sing and pray in our own worship. And then there's this song. And this is like Holy of Holies is the holiest and King of Kings is the most almighty. The Song of Songs ought to be the greatest of songs in the Bible. And, and that just makes me think that while sex is good, it's not that good, right? Uh, there's got to be more. Yeah. Well, and even as we've, in CBR, we've read through six chapters of it at this point in, in our reading plan this year. And I got to be honest, there's not a lot of marital or sex advice in there. So to, to treat it as that's its primary use even seems to miss the point further. Yeah. Yeah. And probably some of that is that you and I don't live in an agrarian society way back in the day, and we're missing some cues. But even so, I think you're right. It it clearly is not meant to guide the kind of relational advice that you dealing with, you know, teens in our church may be asking questions about, or their parents are. Um, you know, that those of us who are our parents are thinking of instilling in our daughters and sons. Uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't seem to work in that kind of instructional mode. It's celebrating. It's singing. I mean, it is a song. It's poetic. It's brimming over with delight. And uh, in that way, it, it's just doing something radically different compared to other parts of scripture that talk about marriage, whether it's Ephesians 5 or Genesis uh, 2, you know, and 3. 
um, it's it's really showing us from the inside out this kind of relationship um, and giving us an emotive, effective awareness of what's going on. But it's a relationship that's pretty startling in all sorts of ways and some of the, the ways they address each other uh, and the kinds of praise they offer each other. Um, and, you know, that's why Jews first believed it was about Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel and his people. And that's why Christians for centuries have said, you know, ultimately this is meant to signify uh, Christ in the church, the way in which uh, he actually shows love and care for his people and delights in them. And so some of those oddities about the text have been what have prompted folks to look for more or to ask what more might this be pointing toward. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of uh, chapter three, I think, for instance, where the, the woman is out searching for her beloved in the night. And if you if you read it, even hoping that it's capturing a literal sequence of events, it doesn't really work. It's it's more like a dreamlike, dreamlike state. Um, it has the starts and stops that a dream might have. You just kind of drop into the action. And then it sounds like she's maybe beaten up by the town guards. But then after she's done with that, she addresses the daughters of Jerusalem as if they're standing right there, which would make that verging on, you know, comedic for that to have actually happened. Um, and it just maybe is pointing us to, even though it's picturing love between two people, it's not trying to tell a linear story of courtship, dating, marriage, and so on. Right. Yeah, it's a lot like, and, and it's read well alongside Psalm 45, where you've got bride and bridegroom, and then you've got friends of them. And uh, sort of there's this movement back and forth between talking about their love for each other, talking to their friends and the way in which the, the friends of the bride play a key role and are invited in to share in a, a way with that love. Um, and then to how that helps us better understand the wider world, too. Um, and so for, for that reason, a lot of folks for centuries have said, Psalm 45 is sort of uh, a lens to, to understand what's really going on in Song of Songs. That's not to say it's written, you know, with that intention, but it, mm -hmm. it maps onto and helps serve that role well. And, now, um, it, we, you mentioned a, a little bit earlier, you mentioned rabbis that have commented on this. And um, Ben and I were talking before we recorded, and it, it didn't make it into our episode, but how there's a Jewish tradition of reading it um, in conjunction with celebration of Passover, which seems to give us a hint of how it was already appropriated before Christ in the church, uh, but it puts it in continuity with that same instinct. Yeah, and that's one of those interesting things to see. When do people think it's appropriate to read a book? And, and that's an example where you know, obviously the Passover role, the kind of deliverance that God offers has purpose, that you would get to enjoy intimacy, the kind of intimacy that can only be even barely described adequately uh, through the most erotic of imagery, right? Um, another way of looking at it would be, think about an early Christian teacher. Uh, the, the most brilliant of Christian teachers in the third century was a man named Origen of Alexandria. And among many other things, he wrote a commentary on Song of Songs, one of his most brilliant writings. And in there, he talks about not how, like, you read it at a particular point in the calendar, 
but as an, a Christian and a congregation, you read it in a, a sequence of books in wisdom literature. And I, I think this continues to have all sorts of instructive value. He talks about how first you've got to read Proverbs, and you think of maybe a young man or woman, preteen, you know, middle school age. Uh, Proverbs teaches them basically how to be a responsible, functioning adult, mm-hmm. sort of. It doesn't prophesy what will always happen in every case without exception, but it tells you sort of how do you do life in a way that tends to work? Uh, How do you adult, as some might say? Uh, And so Proverbs makes you capable, if you give yourself over to it, of being a, a responsible, functioning adult who more often than not will probably get along fairly well in life in most circumstances. But then he says, only after that are you ready to read Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is going to be like a gut punch. Once you've learned to hold down a job and to to sort of prosper, uh, Ecclesiastes is going to remind you, and that's not going to satisfy your itch. That's not going to ultimately give you deep and lasting happiness. It's going to be like the vapor, the havel. It's going to seem substantial. It's going to seem like it provides for your needs, but it's going to be like the vapor that is then gone before long. And so again and again and again, you'll see the things of this world, the kind of prosperity and peace and happiness you find, they're vanity. They don't last. And then and only then, Origen argues, after you've learned how to do life responsibly and after you've learned that earthly life won't actually scratch your deepest itch, then and only then are you ready to read Song of Songs, he says, where it's like finally experiencing that fear of the Lord that Ecclesiastes ends with, where you get to enter in and you find the only thing ultimately that really is worthwhile, that is strong as death, is the love that she sings of. And that's the only thing, whatever circumstances around might be, uh, that won't prove to be vanity. It'll prove to be substantial and lasting. And uh, that strikes me, you know, as just a remarkably insightful way of seeing how different books of the Bible are meant to have different effects. Yeah. And, you know, we do well to pay attention to when to read them as much as how to read them. Yeah. that's a, And that's, that feels like a very strong argument for what we would call a canonical reading of Song of Songs, where you're reading it in the sequence of how it appears in our Bibles. Uh, and it has yeah, that effect. Yeah. There's intentionality behind that, I think we could say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then we could ask, what are some of the what are some of the ways that benefits us, maybe, uh, as we read Song of Songs, looking for more than just the love of a man and a woman, looking for God and his love of his people, Christ and his love of his church. And you know, I, I just think of text we're reading today and tomorrow in CBR, as we're recording this, um, in chapter six and seven, and it parallels what we read last week, just a few days ago in chapter four. We hit these passages that can be a little, I mean, if we're honest, oftentimes off-putting or embarrassing, uh, where he starts talking about eyes and hair and we're doing fine, but then he gets to teeth and lips and cheeks and breasts and the like. And some evangelical readers think this is a little strange and uncomfortable. And, you know, uncomfortable first because he's talking about body parts and some of which we take to be private. Um, But God cares about all things. The body matters to God. So we got to get over that. But then secondly, it can be a little off-putting because he uses really, to us, funny poetic 
images mm-hmm. that apparently would have communicated then that your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. That would have been endearing and moving. Right. And as non-agrarians, we just got to trust that that would have worked in that mm-hmm. day and age. Okay, fair in, enough. In a, in a society that stop, doesn't have dental, I think that works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then if we stop, I think there's a third surprise, and this is where we, we oftentimes don't get to it, and this is where we really ought to be struck. What's really alarming about those passages in chapter 4, um, you know, again in chapter 6 and 7, where he's praising her body parts— is that is God talking about us. Mm. And it's one thing to say that God saves us and he's no longer angry at us for Jesus' sake. But isn't it so much more to say God saves us in Christ and by the work of his Holy Spirit, it's not simply that he's no longer angry. It's not simply that he's ambivalent or he tolerates us, but that he delights in us. And he doesn't just delight in us in some abstract way. I mean, the the man here is recounting and and just delighting in her specificity. And I think that has to lead us to say that the gospel tells us that the saving work of God isn't complete till God has so transformed and sanctified and really transfigured us at the end of the day in glory so that all of our particularities— Uh, have been made completely beautiful by God's grace and that God delights in that, that God really does save us with all of our idiosyncrasies and histories and particularities. And salvation doesn't negate that. Salvation doesn't sort of shake the etch-a-sketch and just do something completely different. It's about God actually saving us. And it seems to me that's just a beautiful, really searching, challenging kind of message um, that'll get picked up elsewhere in Scripture and in, in the New Testament, for instance, but is just so powerfully on display here. And that that so connects with some of our deep fears that either God couldn't possibly love me or that if God loves, he really loves something different from me and my particular. He loves something that I have to become and behave like, or he loves something uh, that's like my older brother or sister or that more religious. Per- you know, he can't possibly love me and my particularity. And it seems to me this really answers that. Yes. You know, he, he loves you more than you love yourself and he loves you enough to, to make you and to remake you. In all the, that idiosyncratic particular beauty that he will delight in more than anyone else, and that just strikes me as amazing. Yeah, well, it, <clears throat> as you were talking about it, it made me think of uh, Zephaniah. I think it's three seventeen, where it talks about God yeah. delighting over us in song, and it's like, well, yeah, in an abstract sense, I could I could buy into that. But then, if you think of that passage in conjunction with the descriptions here, it's a very specific singing over us. It's not an, he doesn't love an abstract version of me. He's loves me specifically as he sees me now. Right. Yeah. It's remarkable. I mean, we want to say, of course, God doesn't need us. We don't fulfill God. Um, There's no, we complete him kind of nonsense going on here. He's perfect, but he has chosen to not be without his people. Mm -hmm. And Uh, You know, Calvin will be led so far as to say that Christ views himself as therefore being incomplete until he has 
finally won over and transformed every last one of his people. And that makes sense of why then parables like the guy running after the one sheep that's been lost matter so much. Each and every little sheep, each and every particular person in the people of God has a beauty and a a goodness that God has worked in and that God loves. And, you know, that just, that gives us a different vision of, of the way God looks at humans um, and the kind of favor and, and just glee that he takes uh, that it seems to me is really important. Yeah. And if we didn't, if we didn't have the song of songs, we wouldn't have another part of scripture. I don't think that would capture the, the personal nature of it. I mean, these are as awkward as these descriptions might be. It's, probably worth noting that it's very unusual anywhere else in scripture to get an extended description of a person. We, right. we, we get what they do, but we don't get a, here's what this person looks like. Right. Yeah. We get your so-and-so son of so-and-so, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're identified by your daddy, by your tribe and by your vocation. Uh, here we actually get who you are and, it's not castigated. It's not demeaned. It's celebrated. Now, of course, this follows, you know, her beginning in, in the early verses saying that she's black yet beautiful. I mean, there's this notion uh, that Jews and Christians alike have always taken that in and of herself, she's not worthy of this, that, that there has been a gracing, there's been a, a redeeming work here. And so that the beauty that is hers, that he so finds delightful is a gift. It's, it's not by nature, it's by grace. But that it's by grace doesn't mean it's not real. And, and it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't really involve God taking just absolute delight in being with and sharing his life with his people. Yeah. You know, and I would imagine as we've kind of worked through some of these things, it's almost hard to not see Song of Songs as meant to be read. Uh, as like Christ in the church, like Ben, Ben got into it in our other episode and we said we'd give a longer defense. And this feels like the longer defense of this is why we read it this way, reading it as Christian scripture, not reading it purely as erotic Hebrew love poetry. Right. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think there are good modern benefits. So for instance, you read some of the great older sermons and I love John Owen my favorite 17th century theologian, but he does over a hundred pages in his book, Communion with the Triune God, where he teaches you to commune with the Son of God by going verse by verse, feature by feature, mapping out how it relates to aspects of Christ. And I think we could say that's probably a little overwrought Mm. and a little too detailed. And we might know Now, a little caution to say, like reading a parable, you don't want to find a one-to-one correspondence with each and every particular character or event. You want to look more broadly Mm. at at the main gist of how this corresponds to that. Um, That said, the fact that we've, in so many cases, ditched that entirely and read it as if God doesn't appear here, well, that that clearly is, I think we could say, that's a secular reading. That's a non-Christian reading at one level. Um, and that misses far more, you know. So I, I do think there's a bit to say we, we ought to be challenged by the way older Jews and Christians read it. We ought to recover a lot of that. But I do think we could also say we ought to 
to not feel as though that commits us to somehow figuring out which member of the body of Christ is which body part and which virtue is which feature, you know, not everything has to be mapped out one-to-one and and we ought to try and catch like good poetry. We want to catch Mm -hmm. the movement of it, the gist of it, the momentum of it. Yeah. Well, that, I feel like that's very helpful for reading Song of Songs as Christian Scripture. Do you have any final thoughts, Mike, you want to leave the listeners with? Well, I was just going to say that, you know, one other thing that's interesting is that throughout Christian history, you know, we often talk about what's called the analogy of Scripture. Some parts of the Bible get talked about more than others, and some parts of the Bible we view as more or less difficult. And that, too, changes over time. And what's fascinating is earlier Christians would more often than not use the Song of Songs to clarify other parts of Scripture. So if you look at the first several centuries, people aren't having to explain Song of Songs as much as they're using it to explain Romans or Hebrews or Isaiah. Uh. And what I take from that ultimately, is that they really understand at the center of of Christianity, of the gospel, is that God wants to be with us. And forgiveness and justification and death and resurrection, those are all necessary means of getting there, but that the ultimate goal is, I am my beloved's and he is mine. It's just this inextricably personal notion of communion. And that's just, I think, a great reminder to each of us that you know, whatever it is, whether it's the spiritual practices we want to practice as a community together, uh, whether it's the kind of doctrine and teaching we want to grow in, whether it's the way we understand discipleship, all those things are good, but all those things serve that ultimate purpose, which is really this idea of, of being with God that's at the center of everything and from which everything else, individually, socially, um, all of it gets its energy. And and what text presents that more powerfully of what it means to be with or in Christ, to be with God, uh, than this, where again and again, I mean, the, the refrain is, I am my beloved's and he is mine, and his banner over me is love. And so it, it helps us keep first things first, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a great reminder. So I appreciate you taking time to talk with me today, Mike. It was a pleasure. Great fun. Thanks a lot.